We've been in this amazing series for the last three weeks, just really seeing how Christ left this model for his disciples to follow, to go to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and really to proclaim his name and just to be encouraged and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So this morning, Pastor Hopper is going to be leading us through this idea of expectant prayer. And as we go into it, I just encourage you to think about this idea of how do I view prayer? Do I go into it thinking that God's going to provide everything I ask for? Are there limitations? What am I really expecting to get out of prayer? Because maybe, just maybe, you'll find yourself like one of these guys. So what will it be, Master? <laughs> You're going to grant me any three wishes I want, right? Uh, almost. There are a few uh, provisos, a, a couple of quid pro quos. Like? Uh, rule number one, I can't kill anybody. <laughs> yeah, so don't ask. Uh, rule number two. I can't make anybody fall in love with anybody else. Mwah! You little punum there. Rule number three. I can't bring people back from the dead. It's not a pretty picture. I don't like doing it. Other than that, you got it. Oh. I know. Prayer post-its. I need something with a lock. Security combination, a password. A password? Yo! You've got prayer. So when we talk about prayer, there's a sort of a... Sometimes it can seem like you're going to a genie, like a genie in the bottle, and the genie pops out, and you're making your wishes... The only difference between that and kind of what we do with God sometimes is with a genie in a movie, we sort of expect the three wishes thing. And if they were to ask, you know, one of my wishes to be for more wishes, we're all like, that's unfair. You can't do that. It's like an unwritten movie rule. It's only three wishes. Whereas God, we don't give him that same fairness. With him, we have this lifetime unlimited wishes that we're going to lift up to him, right? Right. That's sometimes what it feels like in our prayer life. Other times it could be like the Bruce Almighty, where we sort of, it, it really does give a good idea of this concept of we wish God would just say yes to everything and not realizing how that doesn't work in any sort of capacity. So then we're thinking, well, at least he could say yes to my things that only affect me. Why doesn't he say yes to those small things that no one else would notice? And on and on, we have this, this weird sort of concept of what he should be saying yes to. Another one I wanted to show was about Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump, but he cusses through about most of the scene. I wasn't sure if we were that contemporary. But uh, he's just yelling at God at the top of his lungs, on top of his boat, while he goes through a storm. And he shows this feeling of, okay, God, you and me, we're going we're gonna to fight this out. And I think a lot of us have been in that place of just being so frustrated and just saying, God, I don't get it. I'm angry. And you just kind of yell at God in our prayer time. And usually feel better afterwards. For others, it's a rabbit's foot type of God. I keep them in my pocket, and I just want to make sure I've got my lucky charm, which is God, who takes care of me. As long as I got them in my pocket, I'm good. Uh, sometimes he's the cop. 
the cop, when we're really, when we're younger, right? When we're younger, we think of him as God up there telling me all this stuff I can't do. I can't have fun and try these things that I want to try. As we get older, though, it sort of switches to, I appreciate the cop in the sky keeping me from bad decisions, but he's still a cop keeping you from bad stuff. Basically, what I'm getting at is the way we pray is a lot of the way we think about God. And we think that he is in our world. Our prayer life reveals a lot about who we think God is. So when we come to this part in Acts, it's in when the disciples have just, from last week, they, they left and he, he descended into the sky. And they're on the Mount of Olives, and it's about a Sabbath day walk to the upper room. And so the next part in Acts is that next verse in which he is basically in the upper room. All the disciples, there's about 120 of them in this room. So it's not a small room. They're in there, and they begin to pray and pray and pray. And they're sitting there, and they're waiting on God to do what is next, this huge thing that he said is going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to drop. They're sitting in this room, and they're in this room for 10 days before anything happens. And what I want to spend some time with today is talking about what is this prayer life that they're showing us, and they show us throughout the rest of the Bible in these disciples, and ask the question, is this how we also are praying? Is this how we're experiencing God? I have this sailboat up here. Uh, if you are following me at all on social media, this was really difficult to find. Um, if you're not following me, could you follow me? Because I'm going to ask for stuff all the time. So this week it was a sailboat. I wanted a sailboat like as big as the stage, and I thought somehow we could work it out. But this is what we got right here. This is, <laughs> this is our cell boat. Anyway, I think um, it's going to burn an image that I want to really put into your head today. This idea, this concept of the cell boat, let it sink into your head. And this is what the image is. So my kids were asking me about wind. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, wind. I, I get wind. I understand wind. And then I start explaining wind, and I realize, wow, I know nothing about wind. I'm like, um, well, it's, it's from the ocean, I believe. And I believe something happens with clouds. And then there's these, I see there's a weatherman, and he tells me how wind works. And then I think, no, he really doesn't tell me how wind. He just tells me where it's going. And so the more I thought about it, I got, okay, what does the dictionary say about wind? Well, the dictionary says it's a natural movement of air of any velocity. My kids are all, okay, got it. No, that's not how that works. That explains nothing, right? And that's the dictionary. And then there's like five more explanations about wind, but not really. They're all like different parts of what wind does. So we do what we all do, right? We go to Google. That's the magic, magic know-it-all box in our house. Box. It's like a flat screen now. But anyway, Google says this. Wind is air in motion. It is produced by the uneven heating of the Earth's surface by the sun. Got it? Right? That explains everything. Right? No. Even then, I'm like, okay, yeah, the sun heats the Earth, which causes wind. And they're like, wait, I don't understand. And I go, I don't either. So let me move to the real subject here. What does wind do? So that's what I can explain. That's what I understand. I understand that if we harness wind and we put the cells up, then 
I understand what wind does. It causes motion. We're able to do things with it. We're able to build these powerful, huge boats and these sails that are so massive that can take us around the world. Wind is what causes the motion as we put the sails up. I understand like windmills and turbines and things that you can let wind go through. And somehow, I should say I understand it, but I really don't. But somehow that wind creates energy. And I go, okay, yeah, so wind creates energy, creates motion. You can probably see where I'm going with this. When we talk about this subject of prayer, it's very similar. Prayer is really difficult to explain because God is up there. And it's like the post-it scene. He's getting all these things, and I don't understand how it works. I don't understand how some things happen. Sometimes there's miracles. Sometimes, sometimes things don't happen, which seems like they should happen. I don't get prayer. All I understand is what the Bible shows me over and over in how you put the cells into the prayer wind, that you can create motion in your prayers, that, that prayer creates energy in your life. And the more we see the disciples from this point on, they don't do anything without lifting the cells of their prayers to God and say, God, without you, nothing is going to happen. In Acts 1.14, it says, they all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They're praying constantly, waiting on God to respond this, uh, this in your notes, it's your first point, this idea of praying constantly. They were going to sit there and wait for this moment to happen. And when we talk about praying constantly, I think of it as this concept of constantly putting yourselves into the sky, constantly saying, God, you're in control. And when we see in, when Jesus is in um, Luke chapter 5, he gives this really weird parable, a really interesting parable about, all right, what I want you to do, and he says there's a friend, and the friend, it's around midnight, goes to his friend's house and knocks on the door and says, I need some bread. I need, I need you to give me some food because someone has showed up really late at my house and I want some food. And as this parable goes and Jesus is sharing it, Jesus tells about the friend saying, the friend is like, go away. Uh, I, I, it's midnight, first of all. My kids are asleep. I don't, just get out of here. And what Jesus tells this guy is to continue to ask, continue to knock, and eventually that friend is going to respond. And he finishes out the scripture, and he says this, So I say to you, this is Jesus talking, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Now think about what Jesus is telling us here. The moral of the parable is continue to annoy that person. Continue to knock and ask and ask and ask until they finally give you what you need. Is that the strangest parable in the Bible? Because it's basically Jesus is like, you know when you are praying so much for something that you feel like you're annoying God? Maybe a year or two goes by and you're almost, and you're almost like embarrassed saying, God, I... I'm continuing to lift this up to you as if he's up there annoyed. Well, if I'm reading scripture, he's saying, yeah, 
That's what I want you to do. I want you to pray so constantly that at some point you're actually thinking that you're annoying me, but you're not. Continue. Continue to lift your prayers up to me, even past the moment of annoyance. Uh, Right before these scriptures is when he teaches them how to pray. And he says, hallowed be your name. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. I think this is part of our problem. We're not really struggling for bread. In fact, I think most likely you have something in your pocket, probably a credit card or a huge wad of cash. If you don't know, maybe I don't know many of you have a huge wad of cash where you could go out and buy enough bread that we'd all drown in it in this room, right? There's 40 or 50 stores nearby where you could go. You might have a big credit card bill at the end of the month. But you could do it. You could buy so much bread that we spend the afternoon just swimming through bread, as fun as that sounds. That concept of prayer in which you're supposed to pray for bread, you're supposed to pray for your next meal, it doesn't relate. It doesn't relate to us. There's no one in here really struggling for their next meal. You might be a little hungry right now and you're thinking about your next meal, but you're also thinking about the 20 options you have for that next meal. You're not thinking, I better pray because if I don't pray, I may not get my next meal, right? So we have to shift our brains when we read verses like this because it won't relate. It won't ever really have the effect it's supposed to have unless we can shift to a mindset that says, okay, what he's saying is our prayer should be so strong and so part of our life that we're literally praying for our next meal, that God will provide the next meal that we're going to, that we pray so much that he, you would think, is annoyed, but he's not. He shows parable after parable where he says, continue to pray to me. I want to be on your lips. When I was in high school, there was this series of movies called Numa, and one in particular I'll never forget. It just wrecked my world. And it was this movie, it was uh, about breathing and how uh, just on and on about breath. And then it went into this story of Moses in which Moses asked God, God, what sh- who should I say sent me? What is your name? And the name that we call it is Lord. And the, the phrase that he used there, the word, the name for Lord, is used 6,000 times throughout the Bible. He uses this phrase all the time. But if you go into the Hebrew, the actual word there is spelled Y-H-V-H. We sometimes say it as Yahweh. Now, in some cultures, and uh, some, uh, they would never even say it out loud. They wouldn't even say what I just did. In fact, they would probably really look down on the fact that I just said it because it's so holy of a name that they can't even say it out loud. But if you really look closely in Hebrew, those, the Y-H-V-H are all breath sounds, which sounds fine in a normal sentence when you have these, you know, littered throughout the, the sentence. You know, you have a few breath sounds. But when you say this word, it's all breath sounds. So it's like, like you can't even, you can't even say it without just breathing out. And in the point of this being his name is basically, I am the breath coming out of your mouth. 
Is that what the Lord was saying? Was the Lord saying that every time you breathe, the very sound of your breath is my name? In fact, when you first breathe in the world, when you first are given breath, it is me, it is my name that gives you life. And when your final breath is taken, that's me. Again, no longer will you be alive in this world. Is that what he was getting at? Was he saying that I want to be every breath that you take, and I want to be on your mind in every moment of your day? There's verses that say something very similar all throughout the Bible. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives life. Is our every breath the name of God, which brings new meaning to praying constantly? Every breath is a prayer to our God. Everyone breathe in for a second, really, really big through your nose and then out your mouth. It's two weeks in a row we've done this. (laughs) Did we just breathe the name of God? So praying, are the disciples showing us that it's supposed to be on our every breath? Are the disciples showing us how they are going to Look at it as if their next meal depended on it. Are we being shown that it's supposed to be prayed so much that we feel like we're annoying God? I think it does. The second thing that we see the disciples show us is this praying is one. Think about who's in the room at this point. In this room uh, of 120 people in the upper room praying, you have got basically a group of men who were at one time fighting about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. That was who was in the room. You have a group that was basically fighting about which one of them or who was going to wash their feet before Jesus finally showed them how. You see in that room brothers and family members who totally were doubting this whole thing. They were very, very skeptical until they saw him rise from the dead and then go away. At this point, they're like, okay, now I get it. And they're totally on board. You see in that room a very drastic difference in cultures, in uh, economics. Some are rich, some are poor. You see education levels all over the board. Some were highly, highly educated. Others didn't know hardly anything. Some were a very moral, like, um, upstanding. They would have been Pharisees. And the others... Some of them had jobs in which everyone looked down on that job and totally like saw them as the worst of the worst. And that's who's in the room. And they're all united, praying as one. Think about our room here today. There are so many differences in our room. And yet, we're supposed to come together and pray as one. And as we come together and pray as one, your stories begin to interlap and help each other. You begin to use each other in understanding who God is, in growing in your faith, and growing from your stories. All of your stories matter, and these relationships matter, because we're taught over and over by the disciples that we are one as we come before God. In Matthew 17, 20, 
Jesus is walking along. He's got his disciples with him. And they have this conversation. It says, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. We read that, and we're actually pretty impressed by it, right? We're like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Nothing's going to be impossible for us. Have you ever seen anyone move a mountain? Like, really? I, I haven't. I, I haven't seen anyone restructure some land based on their prayers to God. So what is, he, what, is, what is this verse all about? What is he getting at? Is it really supposed to be just an abstract thought that we're awesome? I don't think so. He doesn't normally talk in abstract. In fact, he's usually pretty literal, pulling stories straight out of what people understand. So what I think is actually happening here is there's a guy by the name of Herod the Great around at this time period. Herod the Great. I think he gave himself that name. I mean, I like it, but he wasn't that great. In fact, he comes on the scene early in the Bible. He's the guy who basically killed all the babies trying to take out Jesus. He just says, I, I know that there's some kind of Savior coming, so we're going to kill everyone up to the age of like two. Herod the Great, right? Not that great. He's also known for these big structures that he made. Caesarea Maritime is this, the first massive marina, and he's credited for it. Uh, he built this fortress called Masada that people still go visit uh, on top of a mountain, and it's incredible. He built the Temple Mount. On and on. So about 37 BC, he comes along and he says, okay, I want to build a new fortress. I want something awesome. It's going to be called Herodium, and it's going to be on top of a mountain. But I want it so high that all of Jerusalem will be able to see my fortress. But when I'm in the fortress... I want to be able to see my homeland. Well, his homeland is kind of, there's a ridge of mountains in the way. So he needs the mountain to be so high that everyone can see him from Jerusalem, but he can also see over that mountain range to be able to see his homeland. So what does he do? He takes all of his forced labor and takes, has them move two smaller mountains into one big mountain, and then he builds his fortress on top of it. So what I'm thinking is actually happening in these verses, and again, this is speculation. This is Hopper's vision of the Bible. I see them walking along, and the disciples are there, and I'm thinking that the disciples probably looked over, and they're like, dang, Herod moved a mountain. That's, that's just incredible. What, look at that thing. And I think Jesus is there, and he sees a mustard seed on the ground, and so he, he picks it up, and he says, hey, you guys, do you realize... By the way, this is a pumpkin seed. I could not find a mustard seed. I think they're really, really small. They're smaller than this. So if you can't see this, imagine a mustard seed. He says, hey, if you guys had even like this much faith, moving mountains, oh, you could do things even greater than that. And then he drops the mustard seed and steps back and says, boom. <laughs> no, you guys aren't with me on that one? Okay. <laughs> Spiritual bomb by Jesus? I feel like he would do that all the time. What's my point? My point is, this is the way Jesus spoke. Over and over, using examples right in front of them. One time he's like, there's this woman over here. Look at how she threw those two coins in and then gives a whole massive message that we still use in our today's life. Another time he pulls out a fish, pulls things out. My point is, these stories aren't abstract. 
he's usually grabbing something in the moment that they understand and using it as a way to show God. When we come together as one, that's what we're supposed to be doing. You take what's happening in your life. You take something you saw in nature, something you heard on the news, and you say, man, this really moved me. This is, this is how I see God moving. And then someone else in the room goes, oh, man, I needed that word. That word spoke exactly what I'm dealing with right now. And we give these stories of our life. The impact of what's happening in your life is going to impact those around you as we come together and pray as one. The disciples show us that over and over and over again throughout Scripture. The third thing I see in these scriptures is the disciples show us this prayer of dependence. See, what, what Jesus had said was, I'm going to go, and the Holy Spirit's going to come back. This is what we talked about last week. Next week, we're going to take a deep dive on what the Holy Spirit is. We're really going to go into all of that. But from that point to the Holy Spirit, what were they thinking? okay, I don't know what to do next. So we're just going to sit here and wait and depend on God to move us forward. The enemy, I mean, the opposition at this point is out of control big. Think about it. They just put the leader on a cross to try and knock this thing down. The opposition was too big. They had to depend on God for what's next. The mission that he gave before he left was, you're going to go to out all of the earth and share this message. The mission is too big. We're just going to have to wait and depend on God. They sat there and waited and said, we're going to move for God, but we're going to depend on him to move us. We're going to depend on him for what's next. This dependence on God is something we're going to have to grasp. We're going to have to understand because we have to depend on him in everything that we do, and it affects the way we pray. For many of us, our prayer looks like the genie, looks like the rabbit's foot, it looks like the cop. But it's not what we see in the disciples. Over and over, the disciples are in these, these points of just deep prayer, calling on the promises of God, quoting scripture, and saying, without you, God, this doesn't move forward. They start churches, and they pray over those churches with the power of God to move in those churches. Everything is dependent on what God does next. Do we have this type of dependence? One of the examples I pulled was Paul's uh, scripture. He's praying, and this is in Ephesians. He's praying for this church, and he says, that power, it's, and here, as I'm reading this, ask yourself this question. Is this sound like your prayers? Is this the way you're praying for your church, for your home, for your work? Is this how you're lifting up prayers? Because this is what we're taught over and over by the disciples in his prayer. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. He's speaking of, of what God is going to do in your life. The riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power 
is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, and he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but the one to come. He's calling on what Jesus did with raising from the dead. He's calling on what the Holy Spirit gives us in power moving forward. He's calling on those promises that the Bible shares. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Notice the dependence on God for anything to move forward. Do we pray like that? Do we pray so much that we think we're annoying God? Do we pray for a dependence that are like, like we would if we needed our next meal? Do we pray in such a way that we lift up these cells and say, God, you create the motion, you create the energy? Do we pray as if it's every breath off our lips? This is what the disciples show us over and over. This prayer of dependence, this prayer of coming together as one. This prayer of constant, constant lifting up his name. This is how we need to be praying. I'm going to close our time like this. It's going to be a little different. I'm going to ask the band to come out. I want to put it into action and spend a moment in prayer. Um, the more that we pray together, the more that we lift up the name together, the more powerful we're going to become as a family, as a community. And so this is the type of thing we want to do together. So I'm going to ask everyone to stand and I want to give us a chance to pray together. So I'm going to ask the staff and the elders to come forward and anyone that's on the prayer team um, to come forward. Or if you feel like you're a spiritual uh, warrior, you can come forward and stand across the front. And this might be a tad uncomfortable, but I, I want everyone to be prayed over today. So as this band, as they begin to play a couple more songs, and they have asked me to two to give us enough time to do this, I actually want everyone to come forward and to be prayed over today. And for some of you, that might be a little uncomfortable, and I get that. Uh, do it anyway. Because if you come forward, that person that is a little shaky but really needs this, they'll feel comfortable coming forward. So be, be the strong one. You can be the strong one. But I want everyone to step into this, lean into it and say, no, I'm not, I, I, I need to be dependent on God. So when you come up to one of these people, just tell them, this is what I want prayer for. And maybe you just say, just pray for me and leave it at that. But everyone to have a touch of someone praying for you today. So as they begin, would everyone come forward? Come now.